Welcome everybody to today's special event here at the Apple Store Sydney. Would you please join me in welcoming our guests, Brendan Cowell, Kath Sheepler, and this afternoon's moderator, Robbie Buck from the ABC Radio. Thank you very much, Charles. It's a very lovely introduction. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. How are you? We're doing this oh. standing up. No, no, I was, just, I was just saying hello and then I was sitting down, right. see? Have you worked in the theatre at all? Uh, welcome along to our question and answer discussion forum for, uh, for Reuben Guthrie. And uh, thanks for joining us in the Apple Store. I was gonna, actually, the first question for you, I was going to say, is it, are we in the Apple Store so that you can replace the iPhone and the, the Apple computer? One that ends up in the harbour, the other one ends up on a, on a brick wall in the film. Yeah, it's an anti-Apple um, anti film. It's got a... But, what, I mean, it's a film about addiction, and there's a couple of other little addictions in there. There's a little bit of gambling. There's also Apple Addiction, which is, a very, which is the sequel to Reuben Guthrie, and is about a guy that has obsessions with his gadgets. And we encourage it here at the Apple Store, Not in of course. We are very, very, very happy to be here. And uh, feel free to pick up your free Apple Watch on the way out, everyone who attended today. Um, Kath will be issuing those at the door. Now, has everybody here seen the film? So that we, we, we're not... Everybody has? Okay. Let's talk about drinking in Sydney, because at the heart of the film, it's, it's about a lot of things. It's about addiction. It's about relationships. It's uh, about finding your, your place in a big city. But the, the crux of it is about drinking booze in a place like Sydney. And when I saw Reuben Guthrie up there on the screen only minutes ago, I couldn't help but think that he sounded a bit like you and looked a little bit like you. I'm not saying that, that the character is you. But now, the, 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 a few people think it is me. <laughs> I mean, our friend Tim Friedman from uh, that Australian band, The Whitlams, he called me up and he goes, mate, just so good. I mean, did you go to yoga for six months and clean up your act? You were fantastic. And I'm like, no, Tim, it wasn't me. And he goes, no, no, you were great. And I went, no, it wasn't me, really. But they say if you're going to make a film about yourself, cast someone slightly better looking, slightly <laughs> more charming than you. And now, I, I mean, I never really wanted to play the role because it's probably too close to me and I wanted to create something else and... Uh, it was just, it seemed very, um, we went through a lot of casting machinations, we, I was with another production company, coming up with a film, it's, it kind of creates itself in a way, and Patrick Bramall seemed to arrive, it's so much about timing, he seemed to arrive with his hand up, saying someone give me an enormous, you know, job to do in film, he'd done so many great TV roles. And he was just the, the natural choice. He's also a very good showman. And I imagined he could go into, you know, talk to the, the heads of Coca-Cola after an hour and a half sleep and pitch them a $4 million campaign and they'd buy it. And, and, um, but it's, it was really interesting to cast him because he's so different to Reuben Guthrie. That, and I took him around, to, showed him the program and told him some stories of some four-day benders. And he was looking at me like I was a crazy person, which perhaps is quite accurate. But um, it was really nice to give an actor a job uh, and a role that he hadn't played before. So he has, I, I, like, I like giving actors that opportunity, you know. Kath, what kind of role do you have when it comes to casting? And when it came to 
the acting part as opposed to the, uh, the directing part, what kind of uh, advice do you give about who you choose for a role like that? Well, I don't want to big note myself, but Patrick was actually my idea. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and I did say to Brendan, he's a, a better looking, funnier, more charming version of you. Um, but for me, I, this, the, Ruben Guthrie is a really difficult character because he's, um, he, he, he could be quite unlikable and... And on the page, like when I first read the script, that was kind of my biggest worry was that, you know, he's in every scene and, um, and he could be, if he's played the wrong way, he could be a very unlikable character. And I didn't want to make a film like that. And I thought Patrick is naturally funny and charming and I just thought he's someone who could pull off that character and play exactly the character that's written on the page but still be this, you know, charming guy that we can all watch for 90 minutes and, you know, and enjoy the ride. Back to my original question, which was the role of booze in a city like this when it comes to not just the advertising industry, but a lot of different uh, industries, but also the way that we communicate with each other socially, uh, professionally, the, the, the role that alcohol has. And there's a, there's a great line in there you know, Ruben's fiancée says, you essentially says, this alcoholic country, Australia is this country where, where alcohol is so enmeshed with the way that we engage with each other. Can you give us just a, a little bit of idea about your own observations on that and your own... Uh, it doesn't have to be personal, necessary, but... but no, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you all know, but this movie was based on a play which was based on... Myself taking a year off liquor uh, for personal reasons and also because I thought, I just noticed that everything in my life was based around it. Everywhere I went was, let's meet for drinks, let's go for drinks, let's drinks, we'll have a drink, we'll talk about over a drink, a meeting, everything. Um, I mean, if you've ever been to the Logies, you walk in and there's just like hundreds of trays and, and I found, and especially when you leave Australia and you go, wow, God, then you go to other countries that aren't doing that, that I thought, I just want to uh, kind of, you know, make this little adventure for myself, this little experiment to see what would happen. Not only did I change my complete outlook on myself, I realised the life I'd been living over the past little while and that everything in my life was somehow, you know, linked with that. And that was, in a way, the way we communicated was through alcohol. And I, and I wondered if that was indeed a healthy thing. I started keeping a diary about it and wrote down all the funny things and wild things and slightly disturbing things that happened uh, in that year and that kind of manifested into Ruben Guthrie, the play. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a pretty fascinating thing. And that, that was kind of why I ended up making the film was that in the foyer at Belvoir Street, uh, so many people came up to me and told their story of their brother or themselves and I thought this could get a bigger audience, you know, I, I feel like I deserve that. Is it a difficult topic to actually go down the path of making either a play or even probably more difficultly a, a, a film when it is about that kind of topic? Do, do people shy away from it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, Australia don't want to be told that they're doing something wrong. 
you know, and especially through our storytelling. And I think that's why you create familiar characters, because in a way we have to go one step forward to go two steps back. And we like to see ourselves on screen, but we don't like to be told, uh, you know, lectured in any way or criticised in a way. And so I feel like through comedy, uh, you, you kind of get to make your point even stronger. And I think that's why comedy was created, to be more, kind of, to be stronger and more political in a, in a lot of ways. But also a lot of the most ugly behaviour that happens in the human experience is quite hilarious, you know. And I kind of love, in this film, you know, aesthetically I love rubbing together ugliness and beauty, like ugly behaviour with these beautiful landscapes. I think that's what makes it cinematic. And also kind of black comedy with um, kind of serious undercurrents of drama because I feel like for me, that's a little bit what life is like. Kath, can I ask you how difficult is it to pitch a film that is about, at its heart, boozing on? Is it a, is, in Australia, is it a difficult thing to... a difficult theme to be pursuing? Uh... I think the, the advantage that we had with, with this film is that it was a play beforehand and, it, and the play had been so well received and um, had, had big audiences. And it's amazing, like when we were going around researching the film and working out where we were going to shoot and talking to different people about it, um, I was quite amazed by how many people had seen the play. Um, so that was a huge advantage to us. And I don't know if we hadn't have had that, if it wouldn't would have been the same journey, because it's more, you know, untested material. Of course, the other big aspect to the film and to Ruben's character is the way that his loved ones respond when he gives up drinking. And it's the inability to believe that the path that he's choosing is the right path for him and that they think they know what the better advice is. And I take it that is something that you encountered pretty heavily as well. Yeah, and you're a absolutely. I'm on a, I lost whole friendships. And it's the same with fault that I had, that Ruben had. I'd set myself up to be this guy that will have the night with you, as you, you know, so kindly told the audience this afternoon. But, uh, you know, so you can't then turn around and go, oh, hey, I'm not that guy anymore. Because you've already told them you have through years of behaviour. Um, but what I found fascinating is, you know, the nature of change is that often the person who changes completely understands why they wanted to become a woman or, you know, become a Christian or be gay or buy a gun or, you know, or, you know what, give up their high-flying law job and go and work in an orphanage the rest of their life. They know because they've always felt like that's who they truly were. But change affects the people in the, in the circle more than the person in the middle. It's that fabulous thing in Kafka's Metamorphosis where Gregor Samson wakes up, I'm a centipede, and then he goes, well, that's all right, I just got to work out how to use all these fucking legs, you know? And then everyone comes in and goes, you can't be a centipede, and, you know, a world war kind of explodes and there's, there's violence and confusion. And I think, you know, almost literally with alcohol, if you say to people, I'm not doing that anymore, people go, yeah, I'm cutting down as well. I mean, I, I, I'm going to get really healthy. I'm on the kales. I'm going to circuit class. I mean, I'm hardly touching it at all. And everyone straight away starts justifying their own habitual use of this drug. We're all fucked. I know. I've seen you all do it. You know, and, and it's funny. It's, it's straight away a direct mirror up to each other. And I think for me, really, the film could be about any of those different types of change but I think if, I, if there's anything I want the audience to take away 
from the experience, other than considering what alcohol means in our society, is that when a dude makes a really bold change in Australia, or says anything bold, or sticks their head out, you very quickly often get your head cut off um, and being told you can't make a drastic change within yourself. And I, I kind of want to talk about how wonderful Reuben Guthrie is because he swims against the stream and he refuses to do what all the affecting characters are telling him to do and he stays strong to work out which Reuben Guthrie he actually is. And, and I hope that we could become more of a culture where we get behind people who make really drastic moves to work out who the hell they are. So take us through writing Reuben. It, because it's obviously autobiographical to a certain degree, but you, you're creating a character when you're sitting down to write him. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you have to... To kind of write about yourself, you have to completely separate the experience, to be more honest. And he originally was a TV writer uh, with an actress girlfriend, and I thought, oh, I can't write this. But I found, when I made him an advertising guy, I, I also um, was then allowed to talk about the society which tells us what to do. All the messages we get... Oh, we're in the Apple store. Uh, all the messages we get in life of what we should use, how much we should drink, what will make us more appetising to others. Um, and then I thought, God, we'll get that lovely other layer in the play, in the movie, um, if he is an advertising guy and she's a Czech supermodel and he's, he's doing it for her, this idyllic person. He's what, but she's not there. And her kind of greatest gift to Ruben is her disappearance in a lot of ways. Um, she kind of provides him with something to fight for and tests him and in a way encourages him to be the Reuben that she thinks he can be. And I think it's her and Ken that are the two people in the movie that don't have an ulterior motive, that just kind of like him and believe in him. I think I've gone off the track. No, 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 you bit. haven't actually at all. You, you're describing really the centipede that is Reuben, uh, <laughs> which is great. It, 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 the other aspect to it, of course, is the world of advertising, and you haven't worked in advertising, but you've obviously had close associations with people who do. Yeah. It's a bit of a caricature that we see in there, but... But, but it's not. But it's not. <laughs> We love yeah. advertising, we love advertisers, but nevertheless, there, it, it does parody itself easily, doesn't it? Yeah, but a lot of the lines that, that are in there were taken from me hanging out with the advertising guys, and I work a lot in voiceovers. I started doing TV ads as an actor when I was eight. Um, one of our producers, Jonathan Duncan, is my best mate. He's in advertising. I've been surrounded by those guys, and that magical language in which they speak, and the fact that the, the most important thing in the world is how we sell these toothpaste to women between 25 and 33 and there's grown men and women obsessing over this like there is nothing else going on in the universe and I, I love that. I think it's very funny and, and, um, and very beautiful and when, when he finally, I love the idea that he stops drinking because when I stopped drinking I started writing, I lost all the edge and I started writing really beautiful, <laughs> earnest, kind of worthy tales and I hated it, you know, and uh, it, was, it was kind of an awful creative process to me, which is really depressing, you know. The, the other aspect, though, as, of it as well is, the, is that we're all expendable, and in, in particularly in those kinds of industries, but the, the, the nature that there's a, a hundred younger, uh, better-looking, uh, more talented... Well, not a hundred. Well, at least five, ready to take your place at any, any second. And the alcohol is used as that sort of metaphor of, of trying to keep your edge, but also trying to, to be there, to be the party guy, to be, yeah. you know, amongst it. You've got to be the centre of attention too. Well, I think there's a, you know, I've spoken to a lot of guys in advertising where there's an expectation to go on the bender with the client and if it ends up in a certain place in King's Cross or whatever, that's part 
of the sale. But what I like about what Jeremy Sims' character Ray does, he realises that Reuben has lost his passion, but he knows Reuben's competitive and fears getting older. So Chet is very much a device... Um, you know, he also reflects Gen Y and the new YouTube kind of situation. And, um, and that actor's just so good-looking, I had to have him in the movie. Uh, but it's, it's Ray's desperate measure uh, to get Reuben re-inspired. I don't think Chet's that good. I don't think he's ever going to be a Reuben Guthrie. But he's convincing Reuben that this guy's going to take the mantle unless you step up. And it works for a second until Reuben completely sees through He's the entire industry and turns kind of evangelically sober. Kath, tell us a little bit about the, the characters, the way that you see them. And did you have, was there any discussion between the two of you about how the characters were going to play out once it became a film as opposed to being on stage? Um, what about the scripts then? If not to the characters, the, the, even the scripting at that, that earlier point. Yeah, I mean, again, because it was a play, the... The, you know, the basis of the story was there and, <clears throat> and, um, and you know, a, a lot of the characters were there. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we had a lot of discussions about the, the script overall and the individual characters. Um, but from the point I became attached, which was only, like, the beginning of last year, like, January last year, it was a very quick process. We were shooting by August... Um, so it was a very rapid, <laughs> rapid what are, process. What are the challenges, though, of taking... Because, obviously, there's a lot of great films that have been made out of plays and there's a lot of rubbish films that have been made out of great plays too. But what are the, the, the challenges of, of taking something that has been a very concentrated on a, on a little tiny space with the audience live in front of you to then pulling it apart and creating a, a, a piece of theatre but in front of a camera that's shot across many different weeks? I think the biggest challenge is um, with all the dialogue scenes that you can, you know, you can take things off the stage and you can put them in different locations and you can um, visualise things that may have only been spoken about or described on stage, but it's the, those big dialogue scenes that are two characters having a long discussion, which are the things that, that sort of, you know, come from the roots of the play. But personally, I actually really like that in the film because I think um, a, a, a couple of um, people that I was talking to the other night, you know, young girls in their sort of mid-twenties were saying that they really liked those big dialogue scenes of just hearing people having decent discussions. And uh, so in a way, that's kind of from the play, but at the same time, I personally like that in the film. And if it was written only as a film in the first place, those big discussions probably wouldn't be there or they'd be there in a more obtuse way, uh, which, which, you know, would make it a, a slightly different film. How does that dialogue evolve? Because it, it, I take it you want to pitch something that is very real and very natural but still has a sparkle to it. Yeah. So it, where is that balance as a, as a writer? Uh, in, in the tonality of the film. I mean, I kind of feel... Uh, this happened a lot, you know, when we are in early discussions, funding bodies and things like that. What is the genre? What is the tone? And the tone is kind of me. And you look at Tarantino or Paul Thomas Anderson, like, th that's not sci-fi, rom-com, anything. It's them. It's an auteur's voice. And I think cinema, you know, is a, a glimpse 
into a world that we don't see the world like that, they do. Um, you know, you can watch a film about love, but you've never seen love expressed by this filmmaker. And well, I not, always not by so, you, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what you call it. Not yet. Um, but uh, so I think, you know, letting the audience see the, the way I see the world is the tone. And I mean that in a non-arrogant fashion, but I think that's the purpose of having movies, is that we shouldn't try to create them to be like other things. We should let the voice of the artist and their experience that they have be the sincere glimpse that we have, because then and only then will we have an authentic and unique experience. But there are pitfalls to that, because we see again and again films that are made with that intention that become hopelessly self-indulgent. Yeah, um, uh, what films are they? <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what, what I think... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you've got to do is, it, with Ruben Guthrie, it's got a ticking bomb underneath it. It's, he's kind of lurching ominously towards some kind of potentially horrific or enlightening wall or, or, or experience. And if that is connected in every scene, you can go from him um, speaking about the death of his friend as the kind of you know, catalytic moment when he started drinking heavily that he didn't even realise, which often happens in those circular theatre, you know, circular kind of therapeutic setups. You just start going, you know, yeah, school, school, and then you're weeping and, you know, and you, where did the hell was this buried? And that's when therapy can be a wonderful thing. And then he's outside with Robin Nevin and there's jazz in the car and he's yelling at a cat. And I think, you know, it's kind of two different movies, but both of them are connected to his pain, and, and he's a man in crisis. And as long as the film is always connected, and that's what Patrick and I talked about, it's always connected to this year, to this crisis, to working out, actively working out who this guy is. And I guess what's different maybe in Australian storytelling is we tell a lot of stories on the back foot about torture. And we're kind of tortured and back foot and broken. And Patrick and I were always talking about this is a front foot front foot version of messed up. You know, the, I guess you see more in a New York sensibility or something where they're kind of offloading their flaws onto each other the whole time instead of kind of building an inward nest out of our problems and kind of moaning into them. These are front foot fucked up people and that makes for, for better comedy and, and I feel more akin to that, you know. Brendan, do you mind if I ask you a very personal question in front of the audience today? Is that all right? Sure. Do you really hate cats? I do hate cats. Do you really? Yeah, I fucking hate cats. And yeah, thank you. Um, no, look, I'm very, very sorry. That was that uh, was the only that was the only miss hit in that entire film. What's appealing about a cat? They just like they're so smart. they're holding they're smart. all the problems of the world. They don't really like you they're or clever. anyone. Um, yeah. They know exactly what they want and how to get it. I need more love than that. That's why I have a dog. I need someone who comes in and goes, doesn't matter if you haven't been home for two days, I still love you. Let's you know, It's my ideal partner. <laughs> you know. uh, on a slightly different note, you, uh, you hint at this in the film, but, we, but we've spoken about this outside of Ruben Guthrie, but that, uh, that, that part of, of Ruben's character is... Uh, this uh, Australia, and it's not just Australian, but Australia reflects it. The inability of, of, of men, of boys, of males to be able to communicate with each other um, very easily a lot of the time. And alcohol becomes a part of that process. And obviously that's the father and the son relationship very much where they, he's desperate to have a conversation with his son, with his dad when his dad's not pissed. But his dad can't do it because without the alcohol he doesn't feel like he can 
communicate with him in that, that, in that really intimate way. And it's probably something that we've all recognised in ourselves and our relationships with, with other male friends or, re or relatives as well. But I'd like you to talk, talk to that just a, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think I've written about male communication throughout my entire writing career, throughout my novel, and um, even when we're writing, you know, my plays, even writing Love My Way, I wrote a lot of the brothers' stuff, and I've always been fascinated with how men do or don't um, communicate honesty to each other, and I think I'm continuing to learn about it. I don't think I have a kind of set opinion. Um, I, I found something really kind of sweet in, um, in Reuben Guthrie between um, the relationship between Reuben and Ken, uh, because often I think there's... We think in this culture we should just, all the guys should get together and talk it out. You know, we don't talk it out. And I used to kind of suggest that as well. I don't think we're very good at talking it out. And I don't know how helpful it is, actually. I think women are better at it and they find it more natural to express things to each other in a circle. For me, I feel like if you help your mate move house, like if you get a go get you or whatever, and you get over there at 7.30, and you do a full day, like moving the whole thing in, even if they've got a piano, whatever, you know, and then... Even a piano? Even a piano. Wow. And then you every other day, friend. have a Carlton draft on the balcony, and you probably had enough chats about football, probably mentioned your wife or whatever a couple of times, and something has happened unconsciously, and I think that happens in the kayaking between Reuben and Ken. They kind of... He kind of mourns his old life, starts to accept his new life through this beautiful motion with this kind of large, awesome dude who just kind of is happy to be in the river with him. And I think there's something about men connecting through their bodies, through a, a goal, um, you know, something in there uh, that we can get better at, at helping each other other than going, hey, man, let's just talk it through, you know, I don't know. Is Ken based on anybody you know? What's that? Is, is Ken based on anybody you know? Well, I actually went to university with Aaron Bertram, the actor, and he's, right. you know, um, and I said I should do this, but... I met a few people, you know, along the road um, who... Because yeah, he has that wisdom, doesn't he? He has, has the wise man's yeah. aura to Yeah, I, I like those kind of characters in films that I've seen, you know, I've seen in quite a few movies, but I just thought it would be really... I mean, Chet and Ken are the two invented characters that um, weren't in the stage play, and they're kind of divisive, but at the same time, I want... Because all the other characters are wanting Reuben to be the Reuben that helps them continue to be the flawed people that they are. I really wanted a character in the middle of it who was just to kind of be the antidote to that. Um, yeah. And the bloke with all the tattoos on his face, does he, really, yes. does he really have all those tattoos on his face? Do you want to talk about him? Or... Yeah. I mean, um, he's, he's really good, but he, yeah, he is kind of infamous as well. So it was, it was scripted that in the first AA meeting, there's a guy who's covered in tattoos. So we just rang the extras agency and said, you know, do you have someone covered in tattoos? Great and character name called Tattoo Faced Man. <laughs> Very creative, isn't it? So he turns up for the day of shooting or two days of shooting that we were there and, um, you know, came along and we briefed him and, and, and he did a great job. And at the end of the day, uh, someone showed us an article and we realised that it was the guy who was in the um, SBS... Um, the Punch, the bowl, punch show. bowl show. Where he had been the one who'd lied and fabricated his whole backstory about being in prison and... Um, in the Mount Druitt show. Having a conjugal... Yeah, all sorts. Yeah, right. So he was no, no, a very it was like good a year actor. Or two ago, oh, okay, yeah. right, okay. 
Anyway, he, he's got wonderful eyelashes and he gives he great facial reactions. I ended up using him quite a lot in the movie, but um, yeah. But I, the tattoos are real. And that's also my mother on the far left in the first AA. And hang on a second, line. In, if my eyes don't deceive me, in the restaurant early on, with the flashback of the 21-year-old... Great don't, back acting. Yeah, Excellent don't we see a couple of extras acting. there? Just yes, eating that's, away. That's my back. Yes. Yeah. Just like that. I'm in the movie four times as well. No one's picked it yet. Where's Brendan? Good. I know. Really? What a fun game to play at home. It's low-budget movie making. You just have to grab anyone who's around and Someone chuck them in. Someone doesn't turn up, so, you just jump in. So tell us, were there, were there any guerrilla moments? Did, were there any really tough moments filming it? Were there some, the moments where... You thought, what am I doing? Most of the time, it was pretty much like that. It was my first film and I was really um, grateful to have the experience. I, I made a little telly movie called The Outlaw, Michael Howe, the year before, which was like film school for me. Um, I learned what the job was. So I was so grateful to that because by the time I hit set, I kind of knew what a director was um, expected to do. Uh, but still, it's, I mean, it's the best job in the world. It's like full symphony experience because I write and direct and act in TV, film and theatre and I felt like that was all happening uh, kind of a thousand decibels the whole time and, you'd, and it was just, it's it's really beautiful experience but really challenging and you don't really get a break and even when you go into the toilet people are holding up pillow slips going which colour and there's no, but I love collaboration and the whole, you know, kind of feeling on our set was of no hierarchy. Everyone was valid. Everyone could have an opinion and contribute, and we all made the film together. And That's what Stanley Kubrick did. So yeah. There oh. you go. It, 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 that, that said, you were talking about getting the tone right and it being a, a reflection of you and being a... Uh, yeah, of being a, a projection of, of your comedy and your sensibility. But when you're directing a whole lot of different people and you've got all these... Uh, creatives around you and people doing their jobs, you can't just be yourself in that, that kind of environment. No. You know, so it, it, is, is that a challenge? I mean, and how do you respond to that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the thing about directing actors is, and I gave the actors, you know, a lot of rehearsals on set. I really gave them the space because I think if you empower actors and you give them a film set, um, they start to behave. They go past acting. And a lot of actors will go, oh, this is my crying scene or this is my big moment where I have to declare something and they'll just act the hell out of it. But if you rehearse a lot with actors and get them a little bored of it and really overconfident, they start to do it how we do it in life, which is more while she's making tea, under your breath or whatever. And, and you see all those great things that Alex Dimitriadis started to do that kind of came out of us just doing it 35 times in a row until he started throwing in these... And then, they, bang, that's, that's where we are. But... Like, directing that scene with Zoya and um, Virginia and, and Ruben when Zoya comes back, I mean, they're three completely different actors that need three completely different approaches to, act, to directing. And that's... I learned that trial and ever, but you realise that, you know, talking to Abby with large swathes of reference and everything is not going to help. She wants to know where to sit, what to do with the body, when to hit, the, you know, and things like that. Really simple kind of physical objectives. Patrick wants to talk and talk and talk and, and Harriet's, you know, just wants one word or one thing to do and she'll smash it. And so that's kind of part of the job is it's kind of, you know, working out how to work with all the different instruments in a way, yeah. Kath, will, will you be able to sell this overseas? Will overseas viewers watch Reuben Guthrie? Well, Sophie from the Apple Store is from Canada and she saw it and she loved it. Oh, well, there That's we go. We've got the Canadian market, please. Ladies and gentlemen, Sophie. Thanks, Sophie. 
Canada is ours. That might be just be the, the English-speaking Canadian side of it, though. The French-speaking may have a little bit more difficulty with it. Um, take us through the, the, the differences of, of uh, creating a, a play versus creating a, a, a film for somebody like you who's come through that, 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 back, uh, that background. And what are the easy areas and what are the challenging areas for both of those two? Well, I think, you know, and I've, I've been thinking a lot about this, actually, because the, the, the responses to the movie have been really different to the responses of the play. Pe people, even though the Belvoir, box, Belvoir bar sales did double uh, in history, yeah, uh, uh, which is clearly we've failed there as well, but I think um, <laughs> a cautionary tale. Uh, but uh, I found, because theatre is a wide shot um, in a empty space. What fills the space in the theatre is ideas, words and ideas. Uh, whereas when you make a film, it's what you're seeing, it's a really visceral experience. I can't make that beer that he opens on stage as appetising as I can with a great DOP and a luxurious kind of, you know, shot that makes it look so, you know, and suddenly you want that because your body's responding to it. So I find the movie even more so is making people want to drink, whereas the, the play um, ended up was quite jolting, especially the ending. It was very cold and kind of very analytical, um, whereas film, you get so caught up in what you're seeing and feeling, I feel, I feel in a lot of ways. He did have a fairly large bar in his house, and I know that he was an alcoholic, but you don't think you over-egged the pudding just a tiny bit. <laughs> well, it's half the size of the original one that I had in mind. Um, Whose house was it? Uh, it's a house in Chiswick. Chiswick. Yeah, and uh, I kind of wanted to explore a different side of Sydney, like not so much just the Bondi thing or the Darling Harbour or whatever. I wanted to show... You know, we see the Cooks River, in, uh, which is kind of more where I live over in the inner west. So I wanted to show a different part of Sydney, and I feel like he's more kind of private school um, and more Hunters Hill area. And we shot a lot around Manly and the Spit and those kind of areas where a Joey's boy would, would play. Oh, is that where they're from, is it? I just wanted to I've check. I've heard. <laughs> no, I, a lot of boys that were kicked out of DLSL Cronulla ended up going to those schools. So, um, but, uh, so I, I wanted to kind of look at that world and, it's, and all those kind of drone shots are all kind of around there that sets up um, the kind of landscape. What was the question? Oh, I can't remember. It, after your year off and after writing this play and then directing this film, when you go to a bar... Have you changed fundamentally compared to who you were before you took that year off? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, are you asking me out, Robbie? Yeah. I mean, uh, I look, it's like, I was kind of saying to my sister the other day, like, it's kind of like with her and, like, a, a closing down sale or something. Like, she can't walk past Grace Brothers and 40% off. She's got to get in there. And I feel the same about, you know, when I see a beautiful beer glistening, I'm like... I kind of want to get a fucking part of that. And, and I think if you look at the last scene, um, that, for, that wonderful kind of uh, look that he does. Um, yeah, well, does he reach out and drink it or not? Well, exactly. What do you people think? <laughs> he don't, no, I don't think. I think whether he does or not, it doesn't. Who reckons he does? Hands up, who reckons he does? Okay, there's about, I reckon almost half the audience are going up and the other are saying, I'm with, I'm with the nose. I think he goes, no. 
There, there, well, there's a don't know period. I think the point is, is that um, it's always going to be the way for him. You know, there's never going to be that champagne that lands on his table in first class that doesn't challenge him. And he's got one plan to go and see the girl and then suddenly that thing arrives and goes, fuck, maybe I'll go past Berlin, go to that great four-day day club, hook up with all my friends from, you know, Berlin, Saatchi, Saatchi, go fucking bananas for two and a half weeks, thaw out in Nepal, then go see Zoya and pretend like nothing happened. And I feel like that first look that he has at the glass is the first time I think Reuben Guthrie actually realises it's in him and that it is him and it'll always be him. And it's a demon. And I feel like that's when he kind of becomes a man in a lot of ways, is that kind of fierce, you know, kind of afraid recognition that, some, you know, when you've got a disease, it's bigger than you. And, and he, but he knows how to manage it. He can kind of, you know, take big leaps if he needs to. This is your first feature film. You start thinking about your second feature film after your first. But it's a bit like musicians always saying that the, the first one you've been working on for the last 10 years or longer because you've... You've been mulling over it for such a long time. Do you, do you have ideas for a, a follow-up for a second? Yeah, I do. I mean, I just... The, the thing that happens when I make a film is I just want to make another one. I love... I could shoot forever. I just love it. And I love editing. I love the whole process and working with Kath and just kind of wrestling out this piece. And um, funnily enough, Kath uh, first commissioned me to write a screenplay before we talked about Ruben. Um, and I had an idea based on uh, my grandmother um, and, uh, and a thing that happens every year uh, that she created. And, um, and we were talking about that and I wrote that script. You're going to keep it a mystery, are you? Well, um, just checking. It's hopefully fine it won't be a mystery forever. Okay, but, all right. uh, yeah, it's a, it's a more difficult film. And I guess not having made my first film at that point, I was probably, we were probably thinking it wasn't right. But now this one's turned out all right. I think I could probably direct it. So I'm going to flick the other dude and take the reins, I think. But, um, you know. Does, does, he, uh, does but, he know um, that yet? No, uh, I think this is, yeah, I feel like, you know, I want to make another film. And it, that's where our relationship started. So. I I guess more to yeah. the point, Kath, would you like to make another film with Brendan? Well, it's a bit difficult now, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit like Kath? proposing, isn't it, in front of a crowd? <laughs> I know, I can't say no. No, I, um, I really have always loved Brendan's writing and I think he is an ability to capture, um, you know, very raw uh, material about people and characters and stories. And so I did approach him to see if he had something that he wanted to write. And so we were working on that for a couple of years before this came up. So we're hoping that that will now come to the fore and be the next film. I backed you into the corner on that one, didn't I? <laughs> Does anyone else think I look like a contestant on Say so You Think You Can Dance? <laughs> like I'm just next up with a little Spanish number. Hey, Rebecca. Oh, there! Yeah. Oh. No, yeah, not yeah. I, think, I, think, I was just looking at you going, where is this coming from? <laughs> yeah, you look a bit Spanish. Absolutely. Thank you. You're the little boy who had the curl in the middle <laughs> of his forehead. Uh, for those listening to the podcast, by the way, there's a, 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 a TV behind us that has a, a very airbrushed photograph of Brendan. Um, we're going to open it up What's to questions question? in just a moment. So, uh, but, uh, but I guess before we do that, the, uh, well, I had one other question for you now. I've forgotten it. I see. I was talking about you being Spanish. Um, okay, well, let's just go to questions. Charles, who have we got there first? 
Uh, yeah, Brendan, I'm actually from Canada, and the movie actually made me want to have a drink, but I actually did see the original play in 2008, and it was great, and uh, I really enjoyed your film. The tone's a bit different, I think, because of the cast, so you've got new actors, um, and Patrick, it's a career best for him. I think he should really be congratulated. And uh, Harriet Dreyer was fantastic. Can you ca talk about casting her? Uh, uh, what Virginia, was the question? Virginia, can you talk about uh, the actress playing uh, About Virginia? casting. Yeah. yeah, absolutely can talk about that. I mean, I'm so grateful all those actors. They're all, they all gave me their hearts and they were so hardworking. And I asked all the actors to come to set with their lines ready to go. I didn't want to learn lines on set. And often they were nine, 11 page scenes. And I said, I don't care. When you walk on the set, you got your lines ready to go because we're working as soon as you get there. I had really... Um, Virginia is a really hard role. It's a really hard role to direct. It's a really hard role to play. I've seen it played really well a few times by some terrific actors, but it treads such a fine line. And when Harriet came into the room and Kirsty McGregor, the casting director, kind of told me that I'd, you know, I'd be interested in, in, in her performance, how good she was. But she, she was so different to the way I perceived this character that straight away I went, oh, she's wrong, she's completely wrong. But then I couldn't stop thinking about what she did. And then I just started watching it a couple more times and going, maybe I've got to let this actor go and make her own Virginia and then we'll make something together. And um, whereas, you know, Alex Dimitriatis, I think, you know, that Damien was exactly what I wanted it to be and he got there. With Harriet, it was like this was such a wonderful audition and a wonderful way of almost making Virginia a little less manipulative, more mercurial. She looks like the good choice until she kind of twists at the end. And I thought her reveal was really subtle. Um, she's got a wonderful clowning face. Like she pulls just the most extraordinary facial reactions that I can end and begin scenes on. And she's very helpful to me in the edit when you have an actor like that. Yeah. Hi, um, congratulations on your film. I, Thank you. I just wanted to ask, um, because you're a first-time feature director, what you wished you knew before you started the whole process of directing that you now know now and all of the wisdom that you learnt. Oh, yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, you, you can't be prepared enough uh, because in a lot of ways you throw out everything that you're prepared, but you can't be obsessed with the script and obsessed with, the, with what you're seeing enough because even though I had a really good director of photography, I still got to the edit and wished there was a little more. You still wish for more. So that's all, is that you can't really work hard enough and be prepared enough to deal with everything that you're seeing. Um, I hope that's not too boring an answer, but that's kind of the realisation. I, I think the other thing is that um, when people haven't made a film before or they haven't done a feature film, everyone always focuses on the shoot and on casting the actors and on finding locations and on actually shooting the film. But actually, most of the film is made in post-production and that's the area where you need a lot of knowledge. So I find that a lot working with first-time directors who, who haven't been through the process, and not Brendan so much because he had already been through the process, but that whole post-production end of things is so important creatively and technically and there's so much to know and the technology changes rapidly like every time I make a film or a tv series or whatever it's changes every single time so and it's such a creative end of the process 
Yeah, um, I mean, the movie was really beautifully shot. I mean, Sydney looks amazing. I've never seen a glass of wine being shot like that. And the scene with Dimitri Adias, with the father, when at the races. I mean, overall, you really want to have a drink. And did you think, or maybe to put forward a couple of aspects about drinking that are both negative in the sense of people who have such a drinking problem spend a lot of time maybe wasting it because of the drinks and then also the darkness of the pain of the drink. Sorry about the smell of the vomit. I don't know how to put it. It's a beautiful movie, but it feels like you want to have a drink after it, so which is fine. But no, we failed completely in the making of it. But yeah, but I mean, I guess did... that's. I, I, I like you know. I guess it provides the audience with a, a big weird puzzle um, of all the pieces on the floor that they have to pick, pick up and put together. And you know, I, I like to make art like that. I like to give the audience a lot of credit. And also, I haven't lived the days on earth that you've lived in the same place with the same people. And I think everyone arrives at a piece of art with their own life. And uh, I think the ending at the end, it's, it's not a, uh, about did he or didn't he. It's about the thing that exists within that man and, and kind of realising that. But to glamorise, you know, alcohol and, and then to show the other side, I think is only fair, you know, in a lot of ways. But I'll tell you something about the cinematography that I thought was interesting is that Simon and I always said we're not going to make Sydney look beautiful because Ruben's bored by it. Um, he's bored by the fact his girlfriend's one of the most beautiful women in the world. He's bored by all the money. He's bored by the view. He can't feel anything anymore. And so he starts meddling with jumping off roofs, you know, which a lot of kind of, you look a lot of musicians or actors who we've lost or, you know, or young kids out on the piss skylarking, they're probably just pushing something because they're unhappy or they can't feel anything anymore. And, and um, so we wanted to kind of just shoot Sydney like it was there, where there's no kind of, you know, it will intentionally kind of glamorise shots uh, to make Sydney look any more spectacular than it is. It just is. And the cinema comes through the kind of ugliness of what's happening in this guy's story with that landscape. And I think that's right where it, where it exists. Hi, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Oh, thank you. But, but I was just wondering, after your sabbatical and when you came off the wagon, did your mother make you do it? <laughs> but she's, uh, my mother's a great supporter. It was, she actually took me to that very building, so it was very kind of intense for her as well. And she was minding a friend's cat, uh, which made most of the noise throughout the one hour. And, and I was completely arrogant and, and um, during the experience, and she got a lot out of it. But no, she, she did suggest to me that I was better. And, uh, and she, she didn't hold my face to her breast in that kind of way and pour the liquid into my mouth. And she makes that very well known when everyone is talking about the film. She's a good lady. She's the greatest. But uh, I think it was, that was part of why I did start again. I also was just bored, um, which is a terrible thing to say. But I felt like, a, you know... I was so I think, and it, it was funny because when I was doing the worst drinking, my life was quite good, and I think that's quite an interesting thing. Is that often people kind of make the biggest mistakes or the biggest self-destruction because they don't feel validated in the success or the happiness that they're having, and I think that's what I was interested in, Ruben Guthrie, as well. You don't see 
this damage and all these reasons at the start. What's wrong? There's nothing wrong with this guy's life. So why does he choose to, you know, put it up for ransom? And you know, like why is he playing with it? Yeah, fantastic direction and writing. Thanks. I had a great couple of laughs in this movie. and Just the two? Okay, no, 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 a lot, a lot, a lot. And my friends were in the home group with you too that I do acting with and stuff, so it was nice to see them in the credits as well. Um, just wanted to ask you, with the casting, because you have the legendary Robert Nevin and Jack Thompson and all that, were they your go-tos straight away or did you have other people in mind at all for any of the casting? Uh, I think once we had Patrick... We started to build around that and find some parents that were, you know, parents that could be parents to Patrick Bramwell's Reuben Guthrie. Uh, I cast Robin first. I've, I've worked with her a lot. Um, she gave me my first job at Sydney Theatre Company in 1998. Um, so it was really nice. to. And then I ran a company there when she, she was working there as well, Wolf Too Loud. And so it wasn't so much returning the favour because she's just, you know... She's so clever. And also, she could walk into that character, not judge it, and completely understand... Because she's done so many kind of complex pieces of theatre, she completely understand why that woman did what she did at the end of the... That it was out of love. And so did Jack. All the, the stuff that Peter's doing throughout the film, he's trying to be the best father he can be. It's just coming out wrong, you know? It is actually all out of love. Um, and so those actors are kind of experienced and awesome enough to be able to play those kind of characters, you know, and, and not worry about how they're being reflected. Um, but when I got Robin, she was really excited about the Jack notion because Jack's got so much power on a set in a room he just has life dripping out of him. He's this man who's lived and he's, he just has this thing when he enters a space. And um, so she was excited about working with that, you know. Um, they were great together. And they'd never worked together, which was amazing. Congratulations. Thank you very much. How did you come to Sarah Blasco for the music? Oh, that's a good question. How did I come to Sarah Blasco? I... Um, I mean, how good's the music in the movie? And it's underground just... lovers in there as well. Yeah, which um, Sarah was happy with, which was good. <laughs> um, uh, I worked with Sarah when I played Hamlet um, at the Opera House, and she ended up in the um, in the production, singing and, and composing. And, and that, music. that was part of the motivation for you giving up the booze too, wasn't it? Because you you had Hamlet. Yeah, that and year. He, he says a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I wanted enough room in the warehouse to kind of fit all that incredible philosophy uh, and um, all that fencing. But uh, I met her there, and when I was thinking about Ruben, I thought, this is kind of a hedonistic male story. And I think film works best when it's not literal, um, when it does have a lot of juxtaposition layered throughout it and I thought if I had this beautiful haunting female voice kind of contrasting ugly male behaviour you might get something really kind of interesting uh, out of that. It also brings in the rest of the world her voice, it just has this epicness and it brings Zoya in in a lot of ways when you hear that voice so um, but she wrote three original songs. The last song, the alcohol song she wrote, um, was after she read the script in about 10 minutes and just sent it to me. Went, oh, I've just written this thing. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, you know, it's a world-class piece of music. And she's, you know, one of my best friends as well. So, yeah. 
Thank you so much. It was a fantastic movie. I, I yeah. really loved it. Um, I work with um, homeless men in the inner city who have drug and alcohol issues and mental health issues. And I think that you captured brilliantly the way that people use alcohol to, to um, dampen the pain, but that alcohol actually increases the pain in the end and it doesn't solve their problems at all. And, and it's a cyclic kind of thing where you think you might be through it and you get days up and then you bust and you're gone again. And I think, you you know, that sense of not knowing what the ending was going to be was, was brilliant. But my question was actually going to be that the advertising agency, Patterson's, was very identifiable. How hard was it to convince them to project that as their culture? <laughs> oh, I just thought that was a more your department question. It wasn't like a, can you... Well, it's a funny story because um, Brendan and I went to a meeting in the city and afterwards he said, oh, I've got to go and do this voiceover now, so, you know, find your own way home. And I said, oh, I'm dying to go to the toilet. Do you think I could come up and use their toilet? So we went up to the 15th level of George Pat's building and um, met the, the girl who was actually a, a friend of Brendan's I've been from to university. university with her, yeah. Um, and uh, Brendan's like, oh, this is my producer, Kath. We're trying to make this film that's about advertising, actually. Actually, we need an advertising agency to shoot it in. Do you reckon we could shoot it here? And she's like, yeah, I'll give you a tour. And I'm like, I really have to go to the toilet. <laughs> so I ran off, went to the toilet. She gave us a tour. And we're like, this is perfect. Ask your bosses if we can shoot here. And they basically, well, they read the script, but they said, call it George Pat's and you can shoot here. So they let us shoot there for two days in their offices while they were all there working and functioning and all their staff wandering around in the background of their actual staff. So we just went in and took over. And I think it's all a little bit too close to home for them, actually. It's not a cliche. It's like, it's more of a documentary, I think. They were great. They were incredibly supportive. And, and it just helped with the authenticity in a lot of ways, um, having all those brands involved in the film. You go, okay, he, he works in that place and he, and he sells that product. And you start to believe Ruben Guthrie is who he is in a lot of ways. Yeah. And also, when you're trying to make a film, um, you know, with a, with a small budget and, and, you know, you're trying to make Sydney look like a, a you know, big, decent place... It's those kind of wins that um, make it so much easier for me as the producer because if we had to build that or find somewhere to sort of replicate that look, we just couldn't have afforded to have done it. It would have cost an arm and a leg. It would have taken so much time. Um, and so they're the kind of things that we had to be really smart about to just, you know, get the movie on the screen. I'm what not the, telling. What was the budget was the question? Very low. <laughs> Sorry? We spent a lot less than he did. Um, he had a longer drive than just, us. Uh, just on the note, it, it, was it July? What date was it that it's coming out? July? July 16th. July 16th. July 16th. Okay. So... What's the what's the process for it? How many theatres does it get released in? What are your expectations? What are you hoping for? You know, at this point, it's obviously a pretty pivotal point in its its life. What's yeah. going to happen over the next few weeks? Uh, well, it's still a bit of a work in progress, um, but 
we're releasing it. It'll be on a lot of screens in Sydney. It's going to be quite Sydney-centric in terms of wh where it is. So there'll be a lot of screens in Sydney, um, a, a handful in Melbourne, and then a couple in each of the other states. And then they'll just wait and see how it goes. I mean, it's, it's that thing of, you know, sort of taking a punt, but then being realistic about the marketplace and especially the way the market's been for Australian films. And so it's sort of, you know, dipping your toe in the water and hoping like hell that people will go and see it. But for, for us and for all Australian films, the first weekend that it opens is absolutely crucial because if it doesn't work on the first weekend, the, the exhibitors are there on the Monday morning and just, you know, taking it out of all the screens and they will be at two o'clock in the afternoon, you know, once a day. So tell everyone to go see it on the first weekend so that we can keep it there. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I think that might be a good point to end it on. Please thank Kath and Brendan. Thank you, and thank you all for coming to the screening end today.